If you would uh, open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 12, we've come to a, a very exciting conclusion to an extraordinary book. If you haven't been with us for this journey from the beginning, um, this whole study in Daniel for myself personally has been unusually rich, and I've enjoyed it. It's just been a delight for me as I've uh, allowed the passage to speak for itself rather than just approaching it as a, an apocalyptic curiosity. The more we do that to the Bible, the more we break it down into just topics, rather than letting each passage unfold the way it's written, uh, the further we away from the real message of the Scripture in each place we get. Uh, so it's not healthy to approach the Bible strictly um, uh, in a topical sense. Now, actually, we're going to end up doing a little bit of that next week, God willing, as we move into the topic of baptism as a precursor to moving into a study in Titus. Uh, but we'll, we'll make the case for why that's necessary at some points in time. We are at the end, uh, chapter 12 of Daniel. What I love about this is that uh, the Holy Spirit, through Daniel, has written for us the closing realities that have to happen for us in this chapter. I don't have to draw applications myself. They're actually going to come out of the text for us. That's an enormous help. Uh, we don't have to make anything up as we go. And the text is really built around two questions that arise. So, yeah, I have a question, but two actually. And stealing from James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary, if you have been a little confused about some of the end times prophecy that's worked through this passage and how they've gone, I want you to feel really good about that because while Daniel asks one question in this chapter, uh, he asks the second question, actually. Uh, what, what's this all going to look like? How, you know, what's going to be the end of all this? But the first question about how long is this going to go on is asked by an angel. If the angels are a little confused, don't feel bad. All right? We're going to be a little confused. So if we don't have every detail of the end times nailed down, don't worry about it. That's actually going to come out in the application as we work through this. We're not supposed to have all of that stuff in precise detail. We are to be given enough to encourage us and inform us so that we can act appropriately uh, should these things come to pass in our particular day. Now, the as you've got notes in your bulletin, the passage really works itself down into two sections. We will have, um, there's four words that we want to look at, especially here at the beginning, and then we're going to come down to, um, uh, after these, these four words, we're going to answer these two questions that are raised in the text. So these kind of narrow down everything that we've learned that began being unfolded for us in chapter 7, we're expanded on in 8 and 9, and then in this final vision, which has started in, in 10, 1, and has worked all the way through to the end of the book, we get this final wrap-up, and here it is for us. And there's four words, each one in the first four verses. So the first word we want to look at is the word tribulation. Look at verse 1. At that time, so he's moving off the end of what we've heard in chapter 11 with the revelation of the Antichrist. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble 
such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Michael, as we know from study in other places in Scripture, is an archangel, a personage that we see from time to time, who seems to have a a special assignment for uh, watching out for or dealing with the nation of Israel. And even though this great tribulation is to come, a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time, so unprecedented tribulation, nevertheless, there will be active at this time, especially this angelic presence, this Michael The tribulation is going to be intense, and yet he reminds Daniel here that believing Jews will be delivered. Not just Jews as an ethnic group. Notice the terminology that he uses. At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. This is information that we get in other places in Scripture, the book of the Lamb of God, or the book of life as it's referred to in other places. There's going to be this tremendous tribulation that's going to come. However, your people will be delivered, and there will be angelic activity that will be to your benefit, though you might not be able to see it or feel it. And in this, we see a tremendous tie again in understanding these themes to the New Testament. This isn't just an Old Testament concept. Uh, In John 16, Jesus tells the disciples himself, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. We are going to have tribulation as Christians. The idea that I get to be a Christian and it's like playing a country western song in reverse... You get your dog back, you get your truck back, you get your wife back, because that's all the things you lose in a country western song. Uh, That's not what Christianity is. It is preparing us for the great final cosmic conflict between God and the evil that has come up, and we should expect that that's going to be difficult and not necessarily easy. We in Western, uh, the Western world, and especially in America, we've enjoyed unique prosperity in terms of human history and in terms of, of, of outward ability to, to give the gospel and to do all that we've done. But this is unique in human history. If you look around the world today, you know, we have just an, an, an amazing percentage of the world's economy and the world's goods compared to just about everywhere else. We need to recognize that that's abnormal, not normal. We live in the abnormal, and we've lived in it for so long, we've begun to think that normalcy should be all of this prosperity, when in fact that's not been the case either for history or for so many of those around the rest of the world. But Jesus said, look, I'm preparing you for this. In this life, in this world, you will have tribulation. And in 1 Peter 4, Peter is is emphatic to his readers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Difficulty and struggle and trial in the Christian life are not to be considered strange things. 
They're to be considered normal. So that we're not thrown by them, but instead by Christ redeem them, utilize them, so that we might grow in the image of Christ and so that the gospel might go out and prosper. But if we've got this mindset that as soon as something seems awry, we have to fix it, then we're not going to be able to utilize these things in the way that's given to us. So tribulation is the first word that comes to us in this passage. The second word is in verse 2, and it's what's demonstrated for us there. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now here's an extraordinary tie here for us, that this unprecedented time of tribulation is somehow also connected with resurrection. That the two are going to be coincidental in some way. I think if we read Paul in Romans properly, uh, this, this time of resurrection is especially a time when there will be a great ingathering of Jews to trust and saving faith in Christ. We won't go back and build that case for now. But there's going to be a resurrection, and here a resurrection that he says will be both for the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, Revelation chapter 20 expands this concept for us greatly. And it tells us that, in fact, there will be two resurrections. And they're going to be separated by a period of time, perhaps a thousand years. But the righteous will be raised first. And then after that, there will be a second resurrection, which will be the resurrection of the unjust. Here, Daniel simply gets the information that there's going to be this resurrection. But this, again, is a central focal point of New Testament teaching. So when you go to 1 John, or John 11, Jesus, when talking to Lazarus' sister, just before he raises him from the dead, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Resurrection is the focus for the believer. We're looking forward to that day. We don't want to stay in these bodies. I don't know about you. I definitely don't want to stay in this one. It is in the process of breaking down. You know, I, had, I hit my peak probably around the age of six. And it's been, it's been downhill ever since. And, and I don't know about you. I don't want this. I want the fullness of the, of the manifestation of the glory of Christ as he redeems all of creation and as he gives us resurrection bodies like his own. We fight so hard to hang on to what is in the process of passing away, rather than setting our hope and affection on the resurrection to come. 1 Corinthians 15. You see, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if this whole resurrection thing is a myth or has no real hope for us, then the truth is our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Without the resurrection, we have no gospel because it's the conclusion of the gospel. Christ didn't just die on the cross. He was raised again for our justification. And we're to be raised with Him. And if that isn't the final goal of the believer, we're stuck There's no sense preaching this. There's no sense preaching Christ. If in this life only we have hope, 
Paul goes on to say, we are of all men most miserable. If this is it, I want my money back. This isn't worth it. We live in a broken, fallen world. And I'm looking forward to a world where sin has finally been dealt with in, in totality. That's what we look forward to. Even as we heard Ben preach to us a few weeks ago in the need to even look at our nightly sleep as practice for when we die. Of a complete giving over of ourselves to the care of the Lord. Knowing that we will at last be ushered into his presence and rise up in the likeness of Christ. The third word already up there for you is kingdom. That's what appears for us in verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is language that Jesus himself picks up and uses, reuses, in Matthew chapter 13 when he's giving the parables of the kingdom. This is a central theme. Uh, I'd like to go back and revisit all of those parables sometime in in the near future. But there in Matthew 13, it says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of God will come to its fullness. It's going to be great tribulation. God's people will be protected during that time. That's going to be coincidental with the time of resurrection. And the fullness of the kingdom will come about. And this idea of kingdom, you know we preached through this a number of, well, several years ago, where we simply went through the Gospels and found 72 separate references by Christ to the nature of the kingdom. It's a central theme, again, of the New Testament. It's vastly important for us. He's building a kingdom. And in Luke 1, you remember the prophecy that was given to Zacharias about both John the Baptist and Jesus. And about Jesus, he said, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh, Now again, we're caught with an interesting part here of what's necessary to understanding the gospel. And that is, there is no gospel that doesn't deal with Jesus Christ as king, as Lord of our lives. We don't just come to Christianity like it's some sort of a system. We bow the knee to the king of the ages, to the one who will be king over all creation, who is ruling and reigning in heaven now and will come at last to judge all sin and unrighteousness. And that's what it means to come to Christ. If you're not a Christian here today, we're not asking you to just embrace some series of thoughts or some theological position. We're asking you to reckon today with the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will one day come to this earth and judge sin. And if you have not placed your trust in Him now that He has taken your wrath at Calvary, then you will stand in your own righteousness on that day and your righteousness will not measure up. Because God demands perfect holiness even as He is holy. 
You don't want to stand there. And so the call is, the king is coming, prepare yourself for this king who's coming. One of the best evangelistic passages in the whole of Scripture is that wonderful account given for us when the spies enter Jericho before the children of Israel cross over the Jordan. As the spies are over there, you remember there was a woman named Rahab, a woman from a shady past, uh, a shady present. She was a, a prostitute, and they find lodging at her house. But what the conversation that goes on between these two Jewish spies and this pagan woman is, the kingdom is coming. This city is going to fall. It's going to come under the dominion of a new ruler. If you make peace with him now, which implies you will have to become a traitor to this present system. Now, beloved, that's what it means to repent from our sin. We become traitors to this present world system that's built on finance and personal wealth and, and personal prosperity and all of the things that the world can give, the lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We commit treason against that system and say, I will undermine it by trusting and making peace with the king who is to come so that when he comes, I'm spared. That's part of the message. And that's exactly what happens here again. In Matthew 13, when Jesus is giving all these parables of the kingdom, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It starts off small, tiny, but it gradually grows. And when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom is coming. And this kingdom will be all that remains. We read it in Matthew 13 in Jesus' words in the other place. He's going to pluck up all the things that aren't part of that kingdom and do away with them entirely. So we have these three words for us so far. Tribulation, resurrection, kingdom. You see how he's drawing all of the things that have come before down to some central focal points for Daniel so that he can get a fix on this and walk away with it into the clear understanding. And then the last word, wait. Wait. Look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. It won't happen right away. Seal up the book. These things, these events are for some time in the future. To seal it is to preserve it, to make sure that it's, it's properly preserved for the future generations. As for running to and fro and increased knowledge, um, some of that may apply to the fact that um, life is going to go on. People are still going to just go about their business, going to and fro until this all unfolds, till it all takes place. But there will be some sense of increased knowledge as we go closer to those days. Other scriptures will see fulfilled and we'll get a sense of what's going on, which is where we were in chapter 11. We'll be able to see who this, this man of lawlessness is based on the information that was given us in that passage. I have to admit to you that of all the disciplines of the godly Christian, this is still the most difficult to master. And that is the discipline of waiting. 
Uh, in more modern terms, the discipline of de- delayed gratification. The thing that is most indicative of immaturity, both spiritually and emotionally, is the inability to wait. The inability to say, I don't need to have my way now. I don't need to have my thing now. I don't need to have things my way. At present, I can wait. I can wait until God's time properly unfolds. We're going to get back into this in Titus when we get there, but young men, this is especially applicable to you. It's, it's when your irritation at your parents because they are not letting you grow up fast enough. That's right. As you mature, you learn to wait, not run faster. Young ladies, same thing. Don't be in such a hurry to think you're an adult and have it all. Older of us, we seniors or thereabouts, we grow so impatient with the world. So impatient with those little kids. You know what? We have to wait for them to mature. But you know how it is when we get older. We have a right to be grumpy. Ever since I was 16, I'm, we, we had a next-door neighbor. And, and my friend next door had a grandmother who was the personification of the word crotchety. And I'll never forget meeting her for the first time. I went over to the house playing, I don't know, it was probably about 10 years old, maybe 12. And she got out of the car and they introduced me to her and she picked up her cane and she poked it in my chest. This were her opening words. This is, this is the God's honest truth. She poked her cane in my chest and said, you're a chubby one, aren't you? <laughs> well, that was a thrill. I mean, first of all, I was fully aware of my condition, but... Uh, but it turned, this lady was just crotchety from beginning to end. She had no patience with children, no ability to abide, uh, to remember the fact that she was once that age and once that way herself. Imagine the patience of Jesus as he waited 30 years from his birth before he began his very brief three-and-a-half-year ministry. Who, who had more words to say to the world? Who could give us more? Who could do more than Jesus? But the time wasn't right. And he waited the Father's time. Oh, this is hard. His patience with his disciples as they just didn't get it. At times... I'm convinced that Jesus must have been bald before he left the earth because he had to keep tearing his hair out over things Peter did and said. But he was patient. He walked with him. How patient has God been with you for the same sins, the same weaknesses, the same things you've struggled with for five years or decades? He waits. And some of you here who aren't yet Christians, you don't know Christ. He has been patient with you to this very moment, waiting. 
You've been exposed to the gospel over and over. And in the stubbornness of your heart, you have continued in your unbelief and your rebellion. And he is patient still as he gives you the opportunity to hear it again today. He's so patient. We read this as, as again, part and parcel of the whole New Testament thought process. In 1 Thessalonians Paul writes, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to what? To wait for his son from heaven. One of the things that is a key characteristic of a true Christian is that he is waiting in anticipation of Christ's return. Are we waiting? Is that a, is that a part of our, our daily mindset that we're thinking that way? I read a quote just this week from uh, Martin Luther, and I, I wrote it down. Matter of fact, I put it as the, as the current um, signature to my emails. Martin Luther said, I want to live as though Jesus Christ died for my sins yesterday, rose again today, and is coming back tomorrow. What a way to live. And isn't that absent from us? You know what we're waiting for? The election. What's going to happen November 20th? That's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for them to repeal Obamacare. If if that's what you're waiting for, you're waiting for the wrong stuff. We're going to be waiting for Christ. Man, that's that's the mindset. and, And you see how that works out. Or in Hebrews 6... We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know, there should actually be, this this will sound a little heretical, so bear with me. I think you'll get it later. Some of us crave an intimacy with God that cannot be ours yet. Because as the church, we are betrothed to him, but we have not yet been to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's good. There's an inward yearning to be closer that will not be fulfilled in this life. It won't be fulfilled until we're actually with him. Don't overshoot. Want to be with him. Desire it. Pursue it. But keep in mind there's a wedding day coming where there will be the ultimate of intimacy with him. It's not yet ours. And this is part and parcel to what is brought to us in this passage. Okay, that leads us into verse 5. And here we're going to come to the two questions. The two questions are, first, how long? And in the Hebrew, that's literally about all that's there, but we'll unpack that in a second. And the second question is, well, what's going to be the outcome? If all of this stuff is true, give me some sense of of how this is all going to be unpacked. And the first question is asked is, how long? So, verse 5, then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood. Now, this is uh, another, if you... Turn back just a couple of pages into chapter 10, just so you get the the context here. 
You remember in verse 4 of chapter 10, it says that on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like burl and his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of of a multitude. Now, this is the person that he sees, and now he's back, and he's saying, now there were two other people. So I, be, I, beheld, uh, I looked, and behold, two others stood on the bank of this stream, and the one on that bank of the stream, and someone, not me, somebody, one of these groups, the ones there, said to the man clothed in linen, the one we just saw in chapter 10, Someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? How long? Amazing. Now, that question could be read three different ways. And you need to figure out exegetically which one it is. He could be asking the question, how long until everything ends, till till the end of the world? which from Daniel's point in time would be thousands of years, at least 3,000 from where we are now, or close to it, 3,600 or 2,600. He could be asking how long from this point in time until all of this ends. He could be asking that question, or he could be asking the question how long until the tribulation ends from when it starts going back to 1140 and 12.2. You said there's going to be at that time this great tribulation, and how long is that unprecedented time going to, to be? I think that's what he's aiming at, is that third question. And he gives the answer. It does seem like the most reasonable choice. Look at verse 6 or, or 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen. Now, it's the angel who asked the question, the unnamed angel, and now we're back to the one who was clothed in linen from chapter 10. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters and of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Wow. Now, without going back and digging up all the work we did in previous chapters, time, times, and half a time would be equal to three and a half. We saw that in earlier chapters, or would be three and a half years. And so there is this swearing by this one in linen, and it's interesting how he swears. In Jewish culture, if you were to swear a vow, just like we do today, if you were to go to court and they would say, raise your right hand, that was the way that you would attest to a vow, that you would authenticate it and say this is official. What is unusual about this is that he raises both hands. It's as though he's multiplying the impact. It's a solemn thing. It's above and beyond the normal. I'm not just telling you. I am promising you with an absoluteness that you can bank on that this is only going to be three and a half years long. I want you to know there will be an end. 
I want you to know it is contained. I want you to know it won't go on forever, that there will be something at the end. You need to really burn this into your brain. It's just going to be a a certain period of time, a period that God has already determined. It will be three and a half years. I think that's just tremendous that he gives that information. But do notice in the passage, when he says that he swore this, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. The climax of this tribulation period, however we want to denominate it elsewise, will be a a shattering of God's people. It's going to look like there's no hope. It's going to look like the church is done. It's going to look like everything is lost. If I may say, it's going to look just like it did Friday night after the crucifixion. When the disciples thought, it's over. It's going to look that way. And then comes resurrection right on its heels. It's going to look devastating. Now, that means the church is going to go through some tough times. The shattering of God's people. But this is why at that moment he swears, but I tell you, it's not going to last long. Three and a half years. Endure. Hang in there. Resurrection will come. And then secondly, whoops, I jumped ahead. Let me go back. Ah, The second question. What will be the outcome? Now this comes from Daniel. Verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. No fooling. The angel didn't understand either. That's why he asked the question. We're all in good company there. I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh my Lord. What shall be the outcome of these things? If this is the way it's all going to happen, give me something. I'm not sure how to take all this in. And rather than giving him a full concrete answer, let me give you all the details, he basically gives him a five-step primer for dealing with all of this. And it's the five-step primer that we leave ourselves with today, and it's given to us in each verse as we work through it. It's just incredible. Especially this, he had to be rattled by this idea that God's people are going to be shattered. I mean, then what's the outcome? Five things, and they'll serve as our applications today as we we wrap up the entire study. Uh, The first is found for us in verse 9. I think this is just amazing. I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said... Go your way, Daniel. Go your way. It's okay if you don't understand it all. Beloved, it's okay if you don't get all of this. It's okay if you can't figure out whether or not Barney's the Antichrist. It's okay. Even though I stole that from Comedy Central. It was a great graphic. Just go ahead and live your life now. Just live. Go your way. Live life. There's nothing to do as long as you're in right standing with God. You see, so many are going to be all tied up in this stuff, and this is what we're doing now. Well, should I buy gold? I don't know. 
Should I buy silver? I don't know. Depends on which commercial you believe most. Should I get a reverse mortgage? I don't know. Well, should I get survival food and stock up my basement? If you like. Well, should I take all my money and put it in precious metals and, and, and diversify? I don't know. That isn't the stuff he's interested in. What he's interested in is saying, live your life. Don't be crippled by this. Don't be overcome by these things. Live your life. We don't have to be paralyzed by all this stuff. We can, we can go about our way. And that's exactly what he says to him. Go your way. And don't worry about whether or not you understand it all. Secondly, in verse 10, I love this because it's so helpful to me personally. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. The bottom line is, right up until all of this happens, the right, some will continue to seek righteousness and others won't. Some will hear the gospel and some will reject the gospel. And that's the way it's going to be. Don't be, don't be all shook up about it. That's the way it's going to happen. These things are going to continue. Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 2.16 that the gospel is the savor of life unto life to those who believe and death unto death for those who don't believe. That's the way it's going to be. That's going to continue that process. Some will hear and be converted up until that time. Others will hear and they will reject and will, will be lost. The present system, beloved, cannot be fixed. An end must be put to it. An end has to come to all that sin has done and all that death has done, and a new creation has to take its place. Well then, what should the righteous do during this time? We continue pursuing righteousness. What is it that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the goal. Don't deviate from that. And if something is moving you off of that, you've gotten off track. Come back to the center. And that's exactly where he keeps him at this moment. So, yes, that's going to continue on. And don't be overly shaken by it. Thirdly, in verse 11. <clears throat> And from the time that the regular burnt offering has, is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there will be 1,290 days. What is he saying? He's referring back to what we just read about Antiochus Epiphanes, which is when the, uh, the offering was taken away in the previous chapter. And he's saying, so as the type was, so will the final be. It's, it's going to be the same thing. There's going to be this period of time from, from all of this outpouring. So from the time that the sacrifice is taken away and the abomination is set up, that'll only be three and a half years, and so will the great tribulation be but three and a half years. What happened with Antiochus as a token shows us, and we can have confidence, and it's assured that this is going to happen. There is an end, and there are limits. Same way as it happened then, you can trust it's going to happen again. And then fourthly, this is a mysterious verse to say the least. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. 
If you want to see a bunch of mishmash, it's people trying to figure out what does the 1,335 days mean. I'll give you my opinion. I haven't got the foggiest notion. I don't know. I don't think anybody can tell us. You know what I can tell you? It's ex- all he's saying is those who persevere are the ones who will be blessed. The enduring ones. Making it past the time. That's, that's the point of the passage, whether I know exactly what the 1,335 days are or not. At the end of this, those who endure will be blessed. Endure. Trust Christ. Wait. And you'll come through. In Matthew 24, and we covered this in some detail earlier. Let me just read it to you again. Jesus answered them. This was the disciples asking questions about the temple being destroyed and the sign of Jesus coming, two different events. And he says, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. They will declare themselves Christ's, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. Now, it is the job of CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox News to alarm you. That's their job, 24 hours a day. Because if they don't alarm you, they don't sell advertising. And if they don't sell advertising, they can't exist. This is what they do. You need to understand how they function. They're a business. So it is their job to alarm you. They have to alarm you about every flu that's going to come down the the pike and kill you. They have to alarm you about every brain-eating amoeba. They have to alarm you about every terrorist attack. They have to alarm you about all the corruption in government. They have to alarm you about everything they can think to alarm you about because if they don't keep you alarmed, you won't watch and their advertisers won't pay money to continue to watch their broadcasts. It's the way it works. And so Jesus says, well, don't be alarmed. I get my news here. It's much better. And so he says, don't be alarmed. This, this, this stuff's all going to happen. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be famines and earthquakes in various places. We just found out this morning there was an earthquake in Irving, Texas. That's God's country. If an earthquake can happen in Texas, you know, anything can happen. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. And all these are but the beginning of birth pangs. I mean, this is, this is just the startup stuff. Not only that, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. Oh, let's start the Christian Anti-Defamation League so that if they do hate us, we can sue them. Does thinking enter into this at all? No, no, it's just, it's just not where we are. And, and then many are going to fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Isn't Jesus good? He's drawing that same thing. He's bringing that back into our place. Matter of fact, he then gives them a statement to just help them put all of that in context by saying, now, all this ugly stuff's going to happen, but let me remind you, verse 14, The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. None of that's going to impact the gospel. 
It's interesting. Their concern was, will this impact the gospel? Our concern is, will this impact my 401k? This is a whole different mindset. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And then he repeats himself in verse 13. Live life. He says it again. Go your way till the end. Daniel, go your way. <laughs> Live. Go on. Matter of fact, he even gives him a little more information from that. He says, live, and then he says, and you shall rest. Live your life, and you're going to die. Well, that's news. CNN's not covering that this afternoon. You shall rest, and guess what? You're going to be raised from the dead, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Awesome. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, all this is going to happen, you're going to die, and you're going to be resurrected, and you're going to stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Now, that's how you approach the end times. <laughs> you know, he just lays it out there in these wonderfully simple steps and gets us to a great place. Now, let me go back and just do one thing in closing. Um, and that is, I want to show you a parallel uh, between two passages of Scripture. The one is Daniel 10, where we saw this man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his, his waist. His body was like burl, his face like the appearance of the lightning, and his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. I want you to compare that with Revelation chapter 1. There, we're getting a vision of the risen Christ. And look at the language that's used. One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, we're back to clothed in linen, with a golden sash around his chest, a belt of fine gold from Euphaz. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his eyes like flaming torches. His feet were like burnished bronze, and his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. Refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters, the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Why do I take you back to that as the closing point? I don't know if this was a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Sure looks like it. Sure looks like it. The language is awfully close. And if it is, then the one that you have standing up and raising his right hand and his left hand, and swearing that the worst of this is only going to be three and a half years, and I promise you you're going to come out of this, is none other than Christ himself. Now, does Christ have to swear to anything to make it true? I don't think so. If he says it, it's true. But for us, because we're weak, and because the things around us distract us and throw us, he raises his right hand. And then he goes a step beyond and says, I am the Son of God. I am the Word of God. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I solemnly promise you, this is all contained. And I will bring it to an end. Now that's where we live. That's where we live. What an incredible God we have. What a wonderful way for him to express to us the fullness of our hope, our everlasting hope, as we face the uncertainty of the days that are before us. And if you are not a Christian here today, 
This is the one who has sworn to these truths. Hear him. Hear him. Listen to him. Come to him. Bow the knee to him. Cry out to him for mercy. He loves to forgive. He has shed his own blood that we might have cleansing from every sin and reconciliation to the Father of glory. Lord, what a great God you are. We stand in amazement at how you open these things to us in the most extraordinary fashion. How you love us and care for us and meet our needs in the opening of your word and your truth to us. I know that there are many today who came in here distracted and distressed with all sorts of things that are going on in their lives. But I pray for this, these few moments they will once again catch a glimpse of the all-powerful, all-wonderful, all-glorious, all-sovereign Christ on your throne the believers will cast their trust there and rest in you. That the unbelievers will come and find peace and reconciliation and forgiveness in you this very hour. Seal your word to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.